We're going to pick up where we left off. We've been in this series called Alternate Reality. And as we're going through this, we're looking at the realization that, that we as the body of Christ live in a world different than the world that we see. The world that we should be living and operating in is the spiritual world. You see that clear in Scripture, that we are simply sojourners on this earth. And that when you are a spirit-filled, born-again believer, that this world that we see is run by a world in which we don't see. You begin to recognize that, and we have to ask ourselves these questions of, what reality am I operating in? And so when we looked at the definition of the word reality, it says the world or the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. How are they really versus this idea of how they are? You see, be, from the moment that you're born, it's all about how you look, feel, touch, see, everything. Everything is about the five senses that we have. Nothing is about this spiritual world. From the moment of birth, we talk about, you know, we think about when, when, when a gal's pregnant, we celebrate the day of their birth as if they didn't exist, as if they were just in some alternate universe that did not exist on this earth. I've been told that some Jewish people actually consider the day of conception as the day of life, because that's the day that they started life. But we, we act like, oh, they're in their stuff, and finally they've arrived. Well, where were they before? I mean, as an example, on the spiritual side of this, you know, you'll hear about these people that, that they'll be in these church services, you know, they'll have multiple meetings and stuff, and there's a lot of teaching things that are going on, and then God showed up. Where was he before? Was he not there? Was he not invited? Did he show up late? Is that what it was? Nobody told him what time it started, I suppose. Like, we use these words, but we don't even think about the meaning of them or, or the implication thereof. And so when we talk about the world that we live in, the world that we live in is here on this earth. Flesh, blood, like it or not, this is what you got. But the spiritual world is the recreated birth that we have, this new birth, that God has now created as his imager and representative. And so now things have changed. We begin to talk different, think different, act different. Everything about us is now different because now we are made new. We are no longer dead. We are now alive with Christ. In John chapter 17, we've read this. Verse 30 says, But now I have come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself as, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. You see, what Jesus is praying here for his disciples is that the world hates them because they have accepted the truth that Jesus has proclaimed. And as a result of that, they are no longer of this world. They're simply in it. And you and I are not of this world, just as Jesus is not of this world. You and I are walking on a spiritual plane. We have a different destiny than those who do not believe, those who are not in the faith, those who have never accepted Christ in any way. Our destiny is ordained by God, that every man could have this possibility, but some will choose not to take it. And that's okay, because God will never force anybody into his heaven against their will. He will allow them to do what they want. But you and I are on a different trajectory. But while we're here, we have a purpose and a job to do. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, Now by this we know that we know him, 
If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought also to walk just as he walked. Who is the he? It's Jesus. You see, when we talk about being created in the image of God, remember, it's not about the hands and the feet. In Genesis that were created in his image, made them in his image, is not necessarily physical attributes. The Hebrew word there is his imager, which is the same thing as an ambassador. It's his representative. God gave Adam authority and dominion over the garden, placed him in it, said, name the animals. Now, I want you to be fruitful, which means useful. We could use a little more of that in our society. And multiply. We got plenty of that in our society. And to tend the garden to keep it, to expand its horizon. He was God's representative on this earth. Eden was the domain that God created that he would fellowship with man and all his created beings until the sin and the fall took place. We see in the Old Testament that Israel knew God. They were in a covenant relationship with him as they obeyed his commandments. But what we just read is John is is reiterating these words and saying these words. He's saying that he who says he abides in him ought to walk as he walked. Who is he? He is Jesus. How do we walk like him? This is not a moral question. You see, you've got to understand something. When we talk about morality of a born-again believer, that is a byproduct. In other words, it's the fruit that takes place as the change that happens inside. We don't try to do better. As we go through, the Holy Spirit convicts us, and we begin to see a transformation in the lives of people. How do we know somebody's born again? There's really only one way that you and I can tell. It is the transformation that takes place that we see physically. It's the fruit. Some of you guys can walk up to any tree and say, well, that's an apple tree, or that's a peach tree. You could have no leaves on it at all. I do not possess that gift. It is a tree. They're all trees, and there is no distinction between them until what shows up. We had a peach tree in our backyard. I had no idea what that thing was until I walked out one day and was like, huh, there's peaches on it. Who knew? A lot of people knew. The whole neighborhood knew. Apparently, they've been picking peaches off of it for years. But I didn't know. So who was John writing to? Was he writing to a group of unbelievers? No. Everything in Scripture has always been written to those who are in covenant relationship with God. That's it. There's nothing written to unbelievers. You've got to remember something. The scriptures were written down for our benefit. They were not written to us as this is some love letter sent to man. This is written down as examples. The gospels are eyewitness testimony. Much of the Old Testament history is eyewitness testimony of what took place, what was said, how did God respond. God has always been our example, and that is no different than Jesus. Who is our example that we should follow? It is Jesus. Is it Paul? Is it Timothy? Well, in a sense, yes, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So can you imitate Paul? Yes. Who is Paul imitating? Christ. So by a workaround there, who are you imitating? It's Christ. In Ephesians 5.1, it says, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. So this tells us something. That our example on how to live is and always was God, or we say Jesus, how he walked on this earth. The things that he did. We see the two realities on example with the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. When Nicodemus approached Jesus, he looked at him and says, listen, as a Pharisee, we know you're sent from God. There's no denying it. Nobody can do 
the things that you are doing unless they are sent by God. And Jesus said, well, you must be born again. And Nicodemus had no clue what he meant because he's sitting there like, how can I get back into my mother's womb? I'm a grown man. Maybe his mother was dead. I don't even know. That's the physical world versus the spiritual world that Jesus was talking about. Then he scolds Nicodemus because he did not understand it. See, the expectation is, is that you and I will understand the spiritual world. Nicodemus should have known because it is clear through the Old Testament, but because of Pharisaical teachings that were going on and other teachings of the day, there were a lot of groups. They were not expecting this born again. They were expecting the salvation of Israel, which meant what? Messiah would set up his kingdom and rule and reign, and they would no longer be under the thumb of Rome or any other nation. At, for once in their lifetime, they would be in peace. But that was the second time Messiah comes. Remember, they were expecting two separate messiahs and accepted the idea that Israel was that suffering servant. So in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, this is where we were last week. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As I showed you with the word repent, man, we always take the word repent. We put the definition of the word remorse, which means grief, sorrow, or regret. We expecting somebody to show this tears or some sort of a, a, an outward sign that they have changed their mind. But repentance is simple. It is a changing of the mind. That's it. Metaneo. To change one's mind. That's the only thing. It's made up of two words. Meta to turn into change. Announces mind, intellect will, frame of thinking, opinion, or general view of life. You see, when he says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is saying change from what you believe now into the reality of God's world. That's what it was. Change the way you think because the kingdom of heaven is here. They were expecting this earthly kingdom to see it set up. So what happens here? He sends the 12, he gives them authority, they preach to repent. What do they do? Heal the sick, cast out demons. They had a taste of what it was like to walk in that authority from the spiritual world. And as we saw, there's a separation. There's always been a separation. It was Israel and the other nations. Now it's become believer and unbeliever. The believer now has authority. The authority that was lost in the garden has been reclaimed by Jesus and now given to man. He is the head. We are his body. That authority as he took the keys of death, he paraded them out and marched them openly as a sign of this authority, which tells us the fact that the enemy has no authority over our lives. The only thing he can do to us is that which we have allowed. And as a result of this, with this allowing of this to take place for years and years and years, we have a very weak church. And what is the one thing that the church is very good at doing? It's very good at making excuses. We're really good at it. We have full doctrines on display that are counter to Scripture because we are making excuses of why we do not see the results that we expect, that Scripture clearly shows. And part of this is, is, is simple. We do not have the perspective of Jesus. If he is our example, and we are to walk as he walked, what should we be doing? We should be preaching repent, for the kingdom of heaven is his hand. We should be healing the sick and casting out demons, doing all these other things, because that's what he did. Now, I know that sounds weird in our minds, because we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. he's up here, he's Jesus, and we're down here. Yes, that is true, but is it also true 
that anything that he said we should do, we should do. Because if that is true, then we should be doing But we're not. Now let's look at Philippians chapter 2. I want to show you this and unpack this idea a little bit today. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. Now watch what it says here. Let this mind, in other words, you understand what Christ understood. The mind of Christ is what you have here. He, Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. What does that mean? He brought himself down. He took on the form of a man. So, who did this? Jesus did. That is the understanding. So, did he come to this earth as God? In all power, in all everything. No. He took on manhood. Look at this in the New Living Translation. It says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. So, what did he do? He stepped down from his deity, came to earth as a man. He took on manhood. That means that he experienced everything that a normal man would. Did Jesus get hungry? Yep. Did he get tired? Who else's verse is that whole napping one? Favorite verse, right? Mine too. Did he face temptation? Did he face weakness? Did he face death threats? Did he have people that didn't like him? Did he have people that unfriended him? Before it was cool. He faced everything that you and I did. But he's the son of God. Yeah, he is. But he took on manhood. He stepped into his creation. Did he walk around just saying, I am Jesus, worship me? No. What did he do? He humbly served. See, this is the thing we have to wrap our head around. We think, well, that was Jesus and we don't do what Jesus did. It doesn't mean we can't. It doesn't mean we shouldn't. We've seen other passages that said we should. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what does this mean? This is a reference to Jesus as the high priest. Why can he sympathize with us? He's experienced emotion, feeling, hatred, love, everything that you have experienced on this earth, he has too, as a man. He did not come down walking around and saying, hey, you get away from me, I don't want you, I am Jesus, do you not know who I am? It's kind of like when when the whole pandemic and there was all the lockdowns were going on, celebrities kept putting out these videos like, we're in this together. Stay home. Save lives. I'm like, you live in like a 50,000 square foot mansion. You have a swimming pool and and all this stuff. (laughs) This is not together. Like, your home is way cooler than my home. My home's boring. I want to go do other stuff. Jesus didn't come into the world and just thwart his, his power and authority around. No. 
That all came later. When he came, he was born as a man. He grew up as a normal kid, doing normal kid things. And as he grew, he began to see his role on this earth. Jesus grew up in a world that sickness and death were the norm. This was normal. Most people didn't live past the age of 40. It was very normal. When he came on the scene, and this is the other part you've got to remember, there had been no prophet for about 400 years. It's called the silent period. God had not spoken. What were they celebrating? They were always celebrating past victories. But not much had been going on. There were things that took place, but not much had been going on. You see, what you've got to understand is Jesus is more like us than we realize. What we tend to do is we put these great men of faith up that we read about in Scripture, and even men of faith that perhaps have existed in our lifetimes or before us, and we're like, man, I wish I could be like them. All I see time and time again is to be like them. We're catching the highlight reels. Look at John chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So this did not go over very well. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. They didn't like this. So what does he say? Verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son. And shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. You see the distinction he's making here? He's saying that as my father has done and shown and said, I do and say. I act upon those. It's not just like, oh, God's up here and I'm down here. He is showing this connection. Now, they didn't like that. Because in their mind, well, nobody's equal with God. Nobody is up there. You can't do that. You're just a man. And that would be true. Except there was something unique here. He wasn't simply unique because he was Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus' life is a demonstration of how you and I should walk on this earth. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, what does he say? Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy means set apart. Acceptable means in the way that God said, and that's our reasonable service. Then he says, do not be conformed to this world. So we're making a distinction between God's man and the world's man. Now, did Jesus present his body as a sacrifice? Yes. As a living sacrifice? In a sense, yes. Everything he did, he was about his father's work. Every single day. Then he laid down his life as the perfect offerer. And offering is that Passover lamb. And then he came back. It made a change here. Holy, acceptable to God. How do we prove what is good? How do we prove what is acceptable? How do we prove what the perfect will of God is? We are not conformed to this world. How do you transform your mind? It's always through the scriptures. Romans chapter 8 verse 5. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now, we've read these. But what do we see here? We see a spiritual mind. We see a carnal mind. We see a holy life set apart for the service of God, living for Him. And then we see the opposite of that. There's always these two distinctions. Jesus came as our example. Where side did He fall? Over here. Every single time. Was He tempted? Absolutely. If you fast for 40 days, would you be hungry? Yep. If you fast for 40 minutes, would you be hungry? Yep. We need some milk does, don't we? That's right, Paul. I mean, the thing is, is that everything that we experience, he experienced. It wasn't just like, oh, he floated around and didn't face anything. He faced it. The difference was, is he was so focused on God's plan, God's will, that he let his flesh go. Look at this example in Matthew chapter 26. We were down in Branson this week, as I told you, and we went to the Jesus play at Sight and Sound Theater. To get an opportunity to go, you should definitely go see it. But the way they played this out, I thought, was so great. Because as we read the scriptures, especially if you read the King James, it's so flowery. You know, we don't pick up on the seriousness of what's going on here. And I love the way that they played this out. But look what he's going. He's getting ready to go to the cross. Okay? He knows what God has for him. Verse 36, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciple, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Now stop. So he's going. He knows what's coming. Is he distressed about it? Yeah, when we read he began, uh, or, uh, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed, we're like, oh, that's sad. You don't understand. He knows what's coming. He is freaking out. I mean, he knows what's coming. He knows he is about to get beat and beat and beat. And he knows he's going to get hung to this cross. And what does he say to those with him? He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Watch for what? Look around. No, he's like, stay here. I need your support. I need you, please. Look at 39. He went a little farther and he fell on his face and he prayed, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. When it says he fell on his face, it's not like he got down on his knees and began to pray. He collapsed. That's literally what the Greek is saying. And he's crying out, My Father... If there's any other way, please take this from me. But I will do your will. You see, he is fighting this flight. Would you want to do that? Would you want to go through this? Why do you think so many Christians have caved in the face of persecution? Because they don't physically want to go through that. It's like when I talked about Pergamum, and they would go through and they walk through that place and they'd have to burn the incense and say Caesar is God in, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 3. They would do that. And many Christians are like, well, it's okay. It's not a big deal. Because then we can just kind of go about our lives. I heard this said the other day. Uh, I was by a preacher. And I can't think of the guy's name that had said the quote. Uh, or that, that the quote came from. But it was so powerful. And, and it was one pastor talking to another pastor that was over in a, a definitely persecuted part of the world. I don't remember what he said. And he was talking to the American pastor. was talking to this guy. He said, man... I don't know how you do it. I mean, you guys face death threats all the time. 
Your life is always on the line. And yet, you continue without hesitation spreading the gospel. In the face of intense persecution, even to the point of death, you, you will go out there and you will do it nonstop. And the guy looked at him and he laughed. He's like, I don't know how you do it. And the guy was taken aback. He's like, how I do it? What do you mean? We've got air-conditioned buildings. and He's like, I don't know how you do it. Because you preach the same gospel I do. But how do you know that the people listening are serious? What does it cost you in America to give your life to Christ? Nothing. That's not true of a good part of the world. Think about that. The perspective he had. You see, here Jesus' perspective. No, he didn't want to go through it. He's anguished, crying out to God if there's any other way. He needed those three men to be with him because he needed the support. But it was God. Verse 40, then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, what, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed. He said, oh my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. You see, he doesn't want to do it. The flesh does not want to. But all he's focused on is like, no matter what this wants, I want what you want. What Jesus was about to go through was worse than anything that you and I are going to face in our lifetime. It's just not going to happen. I know things seem pretty bad here, but I, I promise you, we haven't even remotely touched what's happened around the world throughout all history. But here's the thing, and this is what I want you to get. You can see his flesh is weak, but his spirit is strong. And he's making sure his spirit is driving the boat. But what made him so confident? At this point, what made him so confident? And even before that, you ever thought about that? In other words, did Jesus just show up on this earth? I'm the Son of God. Did he, you think he held that over his brothers as they were growing up? You're like, hey, that's my ball. I'm Jesus. Yo, 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 that's my cookie. Jesus here. No. Because I want to show you something here. What made Jesus confident? He read what we call the Old Testament. He knew what God was going to do. He would read an event after event where God would supernaturally intervene on behalf of Israel. That every time Israel was in trouble, whose fault was it? It was always Israel. Every single time. It was judgment from God. And when they were thriving, whose fault was it? It was Israel, because they were obedient to His covenant. But God always did exactly what He said He was going to do. Jesus was the first one to prove that God did not work in mysterious ways. He worked in predictable patterns. I mean, imagine Jesus, not sure if he truly is the Son of God, not sure if God's really going to raise him up on the third day. Is he willingly laying down his life, or is he going into hiding? What would you do? What if you're not sure about this eternal salvation that we talk about? What if there is something more to it? In other words, we've, we've got to do enough stuff to get there. Would you willingly lay down your life? Probably not. If you're not sure, your life can be taken from you, but you wouldn't willingly lay it down. So I want to show you something. Look, look at Luke chapter 1. I want to show you 
kind of a pattern that develops. We're going to start in verse 67. We're talking about John the Baptist here. It says, Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, who we were referencing here. We were referencing to Jesus. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Now, now he is filled with the Spirit, he's prophesying, but he is also quoting what? What God has promised through the Scriptures. He seems very confident in that, don't you think? Why is he, Zacharias, so confident? Because as he reads the Scriptures, this is their history. It'd be like you and I reading about George Washington. He's watched how God has intervened on behalf of Israel. It's not this, oh yeah, that's cute, you know, that's a, that's a moral story. No, there was water, it was separated, they walked through dry land. This is their world. And so he is confident in the promises that God has made because God has never not fulfilled a promise. Look at verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God. With, that, uh, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. This is the prophecy over John the Baptist. Look at verse 80. So the child grew and became strong in the spirit and was in the deserts till the days of his manifestation to Israel. Now, prophecy given, all these things were promises of God, but what happened to John? He grew. And became strong in the spirit. What does that mean? It means he grew in his knowledge of who God was, how God acted, who he was in relationship with God. In other words, his calling, his his role in all of this. It wasn't like at the moment of birth he walked around, I'm John the Baptist. Here I am, world. I'm that guy. They often asked him, it's like, are you the one? Like, are you the guy? Like, are you Messiah? No, 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 that's not me. I'm the one that goes before him. The one who will tell you the plan of salvation. But there's one coming greater than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to tie. You see, this wasn't an ego trip for him. This was a call. He grew and became strong in the spirit. Now let's fast forward a little bit to Luke chapter 2. We're going to go to verse 25. So we see how John had acted. It says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, what was the consolation of Israel? Remember, what are they waiting for? They think Messiah is going to set up his throne in Jerusalem and reign. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, that's a weird way to say that, don't you think? Because as you know, Christ is Jesus' last name. But it's the Lord's anointed one. The one who was going to bring them through. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. So he was led by the Holy Spirit into the temple. 
And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, he had been told by God that he would not die before Messiah was here. As he saw Jesus, he's seeing the fulfillment of this. My eyes have seen your salvation. You're bringing salvation to your people. But Joseph and Mary, what were they there to do? They were there to make sacrifice. When the womb was open, they had to go and they, would, they were going to sacrifice turtle doves because they were poor. You would bring different animals if you had money, but they didn't have any. And they marveled at what was spoken, which is interesting to me. Is that not interesting to you? Do you remember how she got pregnant? And you remember the angel saying, Behold, you are with child. The one you have, he's the one. And then they're surprised by this statement. Would you be surprised by this statement? This tells us a little bit about her mindset. Now, maybe she just had pregnancy brain going on. I don't know, okay? But the thing was, is like she was not fully, I don't think she fully grasped what was happening here. This child is destined for the fall and rising of many. Now, let's go down to verse 36. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayer night and day. So she was old. Okay? And what did she do after her husband died? Most of the time a widow would try to get remarried because they could not take care of themselves. All she did was serve in the temple. Verse 38, in coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. Go to verse 39. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Does that sound familiar? That sounds like what just happened with John. Well, well, wait a minute. This is Jesus. You see the, the two people here. They're both individuals being used by God. Now, one is the Son of God. Again, I'm not trying to underplay the deity of Jesus. Don't misunderstand me. What I'm telling you is that when he was born and as a child, it wasn't like he walked around like, hey, hey, Son of God here. He did what? He grew and became strong in the Spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The similar thing happened to John the Baptist. Look at verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, which is what they were supposed to do. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Now, as a Jewish boy, 12-year-old is what? One year before manhood. At age 13, you are now responsible for keeping the law on your own. In other words, you can be a child up to that point. You can make those mistakes. But at 13... Now you are responsible for your own actions. 
So he went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Remember, Passover, every able-bodied male Jew had to go back to Jerusalem. When they had finished the days, the seven days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So in other words, what happens is Jesus stays back, mom and dad leave, and they didn't even know it. That's great parenting, wasn't it? Well, you've got to understand something. When they, it wasn't just like they were walking on their own and like, oh, I thought you had Jesus. Oh, I thought you had Jesus. That's not how that worked. They would always travel in caravans. And it was a lot of times family. So what do you think he assumed happened? Oh, he's probably over there with the cousins or whatever. Okay? Supposing they had been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Now, now this is a 12-year-old boy. What did we just read? He grew, became strong in the Spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. What's happening in the temple? He's been sitting there, listening to what they're saying, what they're teaching. This is where the teaching took place. It was likely the Pharisees. It might have been the Essenes. could have been the Herodians. It didn't matter. Sadducees. He's listening to what they're teaching. And he's asking them questions. What questions do you think he's asking? Are they pointed questions? Are they questions about, how did you come to that conclusion? Maybe. Help me understand. Perhaps. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But we know their response. All who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answer. Because he had grown and become strong in the spirit, and he was filled with wisdom. Verse 48, so when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. What does he think? Uh, your father's right here. His business was we were going home. You're losing it. Then Pharisees are rubbing off on you too strong. See, he's beginning, he's beginning to get an understanding who his father is, the things that he had to do. Look at verse 51. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Increase in wisdom, in stature, and in favor implies that you weren't born with all wisdom, with high stature, and with all favor. Does it not? Okay? I was not an English major, but as I read this, that's my takeaway. In other words, Jesus, born on this earth as a man, grew in his understanding of who God was, how he reacts and responds, and who he was in relationship with. He continued to grow in this until he got an understanding. We saw the same thing with John. We see it with Jesus. If you go to the Old Testament, you'll see it with Samuel. 1 Samuel 1, 26, it says, The child grew in stature and in favor both of the Lord and men. In verse, chapter 3, verse 19, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. This isn't growth like, oh, he got bigger. This is talking about an understanding of who God is, how he reacts, who I am in relationship it's common theme to see the people of the Lord to grow 
in their gifting. Do you guys understand that? When Jesus came on the scene, he came on the scene as a man. He grew in his understanding. You will see an escalation of the miracles even. His first one was pretty simple. Water to wine. I say simple. It's a lot less exciting than some of the other ones. But he was constantly growing, even to the point that he was battling the flesh just like you and I. Everything he did was a growing in understanding. If he is our example, then what should we be doing? Growing in understanding. We should be stepping out a little bit. We see it with his disciples because we would all agree they were a bunch of bumbling idiots many times. But after Acts chapter 2, something shifted in them, filled with the Holy Spirit, understanding that authority and that power. But it wasn't like the understanding was just there. It was what to do with it. I want to show you an example of this. In Luke chapter 9, now this is fascinating to me, and it always cracks me up. As they're traveling, okay, mind you. Verse 51, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So he is on a mission, okay? It's time for him to go to the cross. He's on a mission. And he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. Now remember, they don't like Samaritans. Jesus does, but the Jews didn't. They were considered half-Jews. So they wanted nothing to do with them. So they would go around Samaria. They would never go through it. But he sent people before to prepare for him. He's coming through. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? Don't you wish you could do that? Verse 55, but he turned and he rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now, here's the fascinating part. Jesus gets on to them, doesn't he? He rebukes them. But he doesn't rebuke them with think. Because if somebody I'm walking with says, hey, that guy took your parking spot. Let me call down fire from heaven and get that car out of the way. I just look at him like, you've lost your mind. That's not how that works. What did he rebuke them for? You do not know what spirit you are of. It wasn't the fact that they couldn't call down the fire. That's where I would have started. You don't call down fire. You can't call down fire. What had they seen? They had watched Jesus perform. They knew the Old Testament. They knew Elijah did it. You want us to call down fire on these guys? They haven't received you. Elijah was dealing with the same thing. Prophets of Baal didn't receive God then either. You want us to call down fire? It wasn't that it was not a possibility or some crazy idea. He rebukes their motive. Think about that. As they're growing in their stature, it wasn't an impossibility. They must have had an ability to do it or they wouldn't have done it. They didn't say, Jesus, you should call down. They said, do you want us to? It's interesting to me. You see, what I'm trying to show you guys is to get this understanding. Who is our example? It is Jesus. Everybody else that we would model after were followers of Jesus. Therefore, it always goes back to Jesus. Making disciples was a very Jewish thing. Making disciples of somebody else, not a Jewish thing. When they would go and take disciples for themselves, they were disciples for themselves. But to go and make disciples for somebody else, unheard of. Never happened before. So here they were, 
growing in their understanding of Jesus, Jesus constantly correcting them, rebuking them, saying, oh my gosh, how much longer am I going to be here? Do you not understand by now? We watch John the Baptist grow in his understanding of who he was and who God is. We watch Jesus grow in the understanding of who he was and who God was. That means that you and I should be doing the same thing. You see, we think when we read about these stories in the Old Testament that they just woke up one day and calling fire from heaven. All of that. We read about these great evangelists of time past during like the healing revivals of the 40s and 50s and things like that. They just woke up one day and everybody was getting healed. You know what I've noticed is consistency? It was like they had an aha moment that always tied back to Scripture. It's like, this is what God wants. And this is His expectation of us. It's always this growing. So who should we model ourselves after? Always Jesus. And what did He do? He grew in His understanding, filled with the Spirit and in favor with God. You guys see that? Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank as we continue through this that we're getting an understanding of who You are and who we are in relationship to You. That we're not just simply going through life and existing and taking up space and sucking up oxygen, but we are on mission from you. And that you have given us everything that we need, equipped us with all tools necessary. But Lord, I pray that you convict our hearts of those things of which we do not believe and of those things that which we have said, God, you must be lying. That can't be what that means. That's too awkward. I don't want to do that. Lord, I just pray that you convict our hearts in a way that we will get back on track. To walk in the fullness that you have promised and the spirit that you have given us, Lord. That we never lose sight of what you've done for us and we not take this time for granted. But Lord, that every day we live is an opportunity to live for you, to do your work, to be about the mission that you've called us to do. And Lord, that every day we are making disciples for you. Lord, we glorify you in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. See you next Sunday.